Hello and welcome to Jam Sessions. I'm Daniel Noy. And I'm Aaron Kelly. And today we have a great interview with Ed Solomon, who, along with Chris Matheson, co-created and wrote the Bill and Ted movies. Most recently, Bill and Ted Face the Music. I was so excited about this interview. Ed has had an amazing career as a writer, director and producer with blockbusters like Men in Black, as well as smaller introspective films like Levity. I've been a true Bill and Ted fan since I saw the first film in cinemas as a spotty teenager. And it was a pleasure to learn more about Ed's career, his approach to success and failure, and of course, more about Bill S. Preston Esquire and Ted Theodore Logan. The producers of Face the Music, Scott and Alex, approached Think Jam about helping to create and collaborate on an end title sequence made up of a thousand videos shot all over the world during the COVID pandemic. We were introduced to Ed and we collaborated over a series of months to bring the sequence to life and ultimately work with the Bill and Ted community around the world to source brilliant creative video. But before we get into that, we started by asking Ed how he felt about the positive reaction that Bill and Ted Face the Music has been getting around the world. I've been amazed actually, and so gratified and to be honest, relieved. I had no idea how people would feel about it. And we were working so damn hard to get the thing made. And then we were in such a rush. And as you know, in post-production, once the COVID stuff happened, all our plans for additional footage, all our plans for a certain type of editorial process kind of went out the window and we were all just going off the seat of our pants, as were you guys. So I didn't know. I didn't know if people would respond positively or not because... I've never been involved in a movie that had this much anticipation. And, and the first Bill and Ted movie, nobody even knew it was going to happen. And when it came out, they hardly knew it was out. But this one had a, a larger, well, let me say a deeper fan base. I don't know if it has a big wide fan base, but the people who are into the movie are super into it. And I really didn't want to let those folks down. I really wanted to be able to honor them with something that was hopefully... I don't know if anything's worth a 30 year wait, but like hopefully it was just worth the patience because we we'd been inadvertently teasing people for a decade. Cause for, for like 10 years, we're like, okay, I think we're getting them. Oh no, sorry. We're not. Ah, it's happened. No, it's not. I'm so sorry. I mean, we've been so close so many times that I just really didn't want to let people down to be totally honest. So I'm relieved. I'm really gratified. I can't believe it's, <laughs> it's, it's done and there's nothing for me to worry about anymore. Speaking of that reaction, as a fan myself, I had tears at the end. And I don't know if that was a connection to the movie. You know, I was a teenager when the first movie came out. I went to see it with my friends when I was 15. And mm. I am of that age where I've got that nostalgia element as well. But also yeah. the, the cathartic element of the joy of the film, of all the films, but the joy of the ending. There was some kind of cathartic release that was like quite overwhelming and, and made it kind of a, quite a special experience to watch. I'm, I'm so happy to hear that. It's a strange thing in these times to make a movie that is unabashedly uncynical. Mm. And sometimes movies like that get lambasted by critics. So uh, that was another thing that I was unsure. Well, is are we not dark and, you know, snarky and arch enough? And um, But you know what? We also didn't plan on the world being so crazy as it is right now when the thing was going to come out but thank you i appreciate that that desire for, you for snarkiness or whatever i think 
that's counterbalanced, I think, especially for, for critics, which is they're very intelligent movies as well. They're goofy and they're fun and they're full of joy, but you're touching on deep subjects. This is clearly about growing up and, and family and looking at things you're trying to achieve and not achieving them. And so it touches on lots of emotionally intelligent levels. Well, I appreciate that. When it first came out, the first movie, 30 years ago or whatever, oh man, did people think we were idiots. <laughs> I think they revisited it a little bit over time, but oh man, it was hard to deal with when it first came out. Just the pummeling we got from people thinking, well, this is a movie made by idiots for idiots. And I disagree. You know, it was not made for idiots. It was made by idiots, but not for idiots. <laughs> was, it, was it easier to get the first movie made than to get this third one made? Well, you know, it was, yes, it was. This movie was harder to get made than any movie I've ever been involved with. It took 12 years to get Face the Music made. The first movie was kind of hard to get made as well. I mean, we wrote the script, turned it into my agents who fired me. They hated it so much. And then another agent read it and really liked it. It got set up at Warner Brothers. We spent a year doing a series of disastrous rewrites where the studio was demanding that we differentiate the characters, make one the smart guy and one the goofball romantic or something. And it never worked. In fact, at one point, we were almost at the end of a draft we just hated. So we went back to pretty much everything else we had. And then we put two paragraphs in on the first page where we described them as though they were different and then left all the dialogue the same. And people were like, okay, much better. Thank you. And we dodged a bullet on that. But that was at Warner's for a year. And then Warner's put it in turnaround. We came up with the characters in 83. We wrote the movie in 84. We set it up in December, January. So for 85, we were rewriting for Warner Brothers. 86, they dumped it. So then De Laurentiis makes the movie, finances it in 87, films it, goes bankrupt. It sits on a, cell, a shelf. And then in sometime in 88, or maybe even 89, Nelson Entertainment picks it up, puts some money into it, releases it. So that was a gigantic process. Face the Music took 12 years from conception, which was 2008, writing a script in 2010, rewriting it for the guys, you know, Alex and Keanu and, and 2011, and then nobody wanting it for nine years, trying hard to get the thing made. So Face the Music took forever to make. And... Uh, that's part of the other reason that I really wanted it to land well. What were the reasons that people were hesitant for, for Face the Music? Because at least on the page, to me, it seems like a, a no-brainer to green light. You know, what was the resistance? Well, when we turned it into MGM, which was the only studio that we could turn it into because like complete idiots, we wrote a spec script and spent years on it for a movie we didn't own the rights to. I love that. Uh, MGM owned it. So we turn it into them going, guess what, guys? We wrote a Bill and Ted movie and Alex and Keanu want to be in it. And look, all four of us are coming in to see you to give you the script. And they were like, oh, great. But we kind of have a Bill and Ted movie that we already wrote with some other writers about young YouTube star Bill and Ted's that are 19 years old, time traveling with a cell phone. And we were like, wait, what? And they said, yes, because we kind of own it. You know, you don't. 
uh, we get to do whatever we want. They literally said, we can do whatever we want with Bill and Ted. And we said, oh, thankfully somehow that movie didn't get made. I don't know why. But then they said to us, well, you know, if we're not going to do it because we don't think it's commercial. We don't think people want to see Bill and Ted as middle-aged men. So they gave us permission to take it around town. We shopped it everywhere. Nobody wanted to do it. Part of it was because the numbers didn't make sense. Because Bill and Ted had a tiny release and a very little foreign release. It was released in the UK, but not really around the world. The, the finances didn't show that over 25 years, it really had caught on in the aftermarket life of Bill and Ted. But there was only anecdotal evidence for that. There was no actual financial numbers to support that. So that was part of the problem. But then through the power of social media and the power of the internet, gradually by 2015, 2016, and then really like 2017, 2018, people started to see the reactions of fans. And it was so strong that it actually convinced the powers that be to allow us to get it made. I mean, it was actually in a weird way fan generated because of that. I think it's probably a, a good segue to how you got introduced to Think Jam and what kind of led you to your thinking for the end title sequence. So we set this idea up for ourselves in the story that the guys are going to write a, a song that was going to unite the world. But that is a really impossible task to set yourself up for, because that means you have to write a song that's so good or somehow appears to be so good that like it's going to unite the whole planet, which is a really stupid idea if you're a writer to try to do. It's like going, and now the poem that saves the universe. And then you, you write a poem and try to convince people that it's good enough. It's so stupid. It was a very dumb uh, bar to set for ourselves. And very soon we realized it can't be the quality of the song. It's impossible. It, it will put such a terrible onus on this piece of little piffle, this little piece of art that it's doomed to fail. And not only that, it's, it's, a, it's just a bad idea. So what does it mean to unite the world with a piece of music? And that's when we were thinking, well, it's, you know, it's not about the song. It's per se, it's about how it's played and who plays it. And maybe the fact that the song comes from everybody. And that was like, right, yes, okay. And it still wasn't quite gelling. I was talking to my girlfriend about it and I realized we're never gonna be able to shoot enough people on the planet playing you know the this song and i literally woke up with this idea wait i literally in the morning woke up we were talking about the night before and i said oh my god what if actual people like real people from everywhere just send in video of themselves playing along and when was that thought when did that happen i think i think it was just before we went into production early 2019 it, it, it came down to a production exigency, meaning we didn't have the money to go send cameras everywhere or shoot people with green screen and dress them up and get, you know, thousands of people. And it was like, well, how are we going to do this so that it feels like we really got everyone to do it? And I just woke up and said, wait, what if we actually have people do it? Like real people just send in them playing along. There was a lot of fighting 
about whether it was really a good idea or not. There were a couple of people in the production who controlled the purse strings, uh, who shall go nameless because they really fought against this idea and thought they'd be very clever and design it to be done very much toward the end where we'd be completely out of money and therefore couldn't do it. And thankfully, as we got into the editorial process, uh, we realized, oh my gosh, we really do want this. We still really want it. So with very little money left and very little time, we reached out to you guys <laughs> and said, we're so sorry. We don't have money or time, but can you help us with this? And I have to say, Think Jam came through in a remarkable way. I know that that's not what the point of this podcast is, but you guys really crushed it. It was incredible and, and you were incredible to work with. And, and so what happened was we sent out with you guys, we sent out this notification of, hey, you want to be a part of the movie, dance or play or whatever along to the song. And what started coming in was so moving and so wonderful to watch that it was like, you know, I'd wished we'd had more time to really, to really support it. You know, the other thing that we were planning to do along with it, but, but unfortunately COVID messed us up. We were planning to shoot additional footage that was going to match the footage you guys got. We had always planned to shoot footage of Alex and Keanu handing out instruments to around the world, but because of COVID, we, we, we weren't able to do that. So we had to kind of edit around all that. But yeah, the idea came literally was an epiphany I remember waking up from. I was going to mention COVID because I think that's, it's sort of the fascinating piece in all, in all of this. Obviously, I think we, we first heard about the idea sometime late, late 2019, I think, when we first understood, obviously it was in the script and we'd, we'd started chatting to Scott and Alex about it, the producers of the film. But I think what, what was really fascinating is when we actually came around to have the conversation about it, the whole entire world is going into this new thing, which we've kind of called lockdown, where everyone's stuck at home. No one can leave the houses. And like families are kind of stuck together. People aren't going to work. And so suddenly it was like, not only was it like a fun logistical challenge, um, you know, I, I feel like I spent the first six weeks of my lockdown with you, Ed, even though we're on other sides of the world because we had those daily <laughs> FaceTime calls uh, to, to figure it all out. I'm really sorry about that. I'm no, really no, no. sorry that, that had to be your experience. It's a fun me memory. <laughs> but I think it also gave people like a real reason to get involved beyond just the excitement of being in a film. I like to think that people were so enthusiastic because it also gave them something really fun to do. For me, the film is about optimism. And, it, and it can't, it's, it's interesting because that, you know, their odds are set against them and they've got to write the song and, and it is kind of their their goofballness and their sort of endless optimism that eventually finds its way through. Uh, the lack of cynicism isn't just in the feeling of the film, it's also in the script. And then also there's this like beautiful piece on top that we then go out and we ask thousands of people around the world, some of which are in some pretty dire situations, locked up at home, losing jobs, all the rest of it. And we ask them to grab a, a mop or a tea towel or a fake guitar or a, an old keyboard and send us a video of them going kind of ape shit and in, in the best way obviously i'm biased because we worked on the process but i thought it came together really well because it ends what is a extremely optimistic film in the most sort of optimistic coming together way even though no one actually physically came together so it's kind of a it's almost a big sort of covid bow on the film but in an in optimistic way well i appreciate that 
the optimism and the lack of cynicism emanates from those characters themselves. You know, that that inhabiting that mindset was it's always such a joyful place to be. That's why they were fun to write. And that's why we screwed around doing Bill and Ted for a year before we ever wrote the first one. And that's why it was fun to get back in their heads after all this time. But the that end piece came together so nicely that I will confess that sometimes when I was feeling really bummed before the movie came out and when I was feeling like kind of worn down, like a lot of people were just from, God dang, I'm in my fricking house again. I'm just, you know, I can't see friends and I'm stuck here in this isolation. Sometimes I'd watch that end piece with all those people dancing joyfully and playing along to something that we created, which was staggering to me, you know, that was the most moving part to me was this silly little idea that emanated in a dark little stage where Chris and me and some friends of ours were doing improv for no audience, just working out for the sake of working out, came up with these characters that we just liked playing, that we didn't even assign each other a character. We would just do Bill and Ted without any idea who was Bill or who was Ted. And then put into this movie that we didn't even think we'd sell, let alone it would get made. And then when it was made, it didn't even look like it would last, to be honest. Because as I said, it was just lambasted by critics and, you know, had this tiny little run. To then 30 some odd years later, be watching a compilation of videos from all over the world sent in by people for whom this movie and these characters actually meant something was phenomenally meaningful to me. And then to see it in this joyful, exuberant expression of inclusivity and positive spirit during this crap time we're all going through, it was one of the most moving things for me about the whole process. It touched on me in a deep way. It impressed upon me just how much it meant to me to have made a little statement that was heard by a lot of people. What an incredible feeling. I love that. I think what, what's really exciting is obviously the world has changed a lot, but the, the, the process of actually making a film hasn't necessarily changed that much. So I think what was really exciting about it was to kind of bring some of that global interconnectedness, but actually into the scene of a movie, certainly, you know, in, Think Jam's run, the first time we've actually put something into the film itself rather than usually working around the marketing, around the release, around the, but to be able to actually work, work on those exciting fan campaigns, which are always fun to work on because it's passion, but actually insert that into the film. It was a great, great fun opportunity for us too. We enjoyed it. And it's, um, it, it's fun you talking about the sort of bringing people together. Dan, Dan is sheepishly hiding it, but he's wearing a t-shirt that has, has your words written across it. Um, really? which is for, for, oh, those, sweet. for those listening, it says be excellent to each other. I think it, it, I it becomes that. a brilliant, a brilliant line throughout COVID and all the, all the shitty stuff that's happened throughout 2020. And I think, you know, we all feel like you wrote something that was really warm and family friendly at a time when most of the stuff on the TV and on the news is a, is a little bit of a downer. Well, I'd appreciate that. I remember when Chris and I were at this little coffee shop in Westwood after midnight, coming up with this notion to take the rough draft of the script and add the future element, Bill and Ted's 
going into the future instead of just doing a history report and the threat being that they were going to be separated, we added this idea that, well, what if Rufus is not just their friend who drives a van who happens, that happens to travel through time, but what if Rufus comes from the future because Bill and Ted's music in the future is going to be like the thing that saves them all. We added that and then we said, well, then we have to have a scene where they go to the future and we wrote the scene where they go to the future and then we're like, well, what would they say to each other? We didn't even think about it. We're like, well, be excellent to each other. Yeah and party on dudes okay and we just kept going we didn't think that that would we had no idea that that would be on dan's t-shirt now again another amazing thing of the the way this kind of stuff works um by the way i'd like to say one thing because maybe folks who are listening to this who saw the movie might want to know this the way the those videos worked was so you guys organized this campaign to get these thousands, what do you get, like five, how many, I don't know how many you had, but like thousands and thousands of videos came in. You put them into a bin of the ones that we could use legally. There were a bunch that came in that we obviously couldn't use legally because people included, you know, logos that they didn't realize they couldn't use or the film quality was such that it wouldn't work on screen or whatever. And then the titles company that put together the, uh, the end and the beginning titles chose the final ones to, to be used. I, I wasn't a part of that process. How did you guys feel about the choices they made? And were there ones in there that you wish they'd used? I think it, obviously, because everything happened so quick, it was such a volume of videos. It was 5,750 came in in the end. And I think we delivered about 2000 of those to production. And then there's about a thousand featured. So there's so, so many that I think I, w- I was just really pleased with how it came together. I don't know if you'll remember this, Ed. Maybe I'm being overly sentimental because I haven't left the house in seven months. But uh, um, I remember texting you when we got the first submission that I thought was interesting, which is the guy that put his skateboards into the scene and pops up the skateboard and plays air yep. guitar on the skateboard, which for me was, was the first moment where I was like, okay, People are going to get creative. They're going to, they're going to, it's not, they're not just going to stare at a camera. Um, and I was really glad that he made it and he's got a nice little moment, which I thought was brilliant. And then obviously um, there's a, a little girl who screams into the camera. Who's also made it, which I thought was brilliant. So there was a few people I was really glad made the cut that kind of had like their, I guess their sentimental value throughout the process. Cause they kind of like, they popped up at the right time and they represented that there was a different type yeah. of submission coming and, and then the choirs that was, was more your doing than ours uh, in, in facilitating those sort of global choirs from really, there's a Mongolian children's choir. I think, you know, th- those were just amazing when they came in at the last minute. So I think it was amazing those were able to be featured. So, you know, when I say optimism and no cynicism, I, I kind of watched it just with a big smile on my face because I think the right stuff made the cut. And obviously those that, if anyone is listening to this, that did submit and the other several thousand, Everyone obviously worked their hardest to get as much in there as possible. My hope was that at the end montage, when when the frame is filled with them, that we get to include all of them. And what I was told by the titles company, that if people looked hard enough, they'll find themselves in there. But I think, it's really hard because it just flashes at that period. I think end. everybody who was le- legally cleared made it into that end yeah. shot there once we had all the obviously all the clearances. We got a, we got a brilliant email from a young girl probably 10 or 12 and there's just a picture of her with her finger on a huge big plasma tv screen paused on that shot just pointing mm-hmm. at herself because she spent hours figuring out which of those tiny frames 
Um, so obviously it, it, it meant a lot to the folks that made it, which I think is cool. Yeah, I think that, that's a really big thing. You know, Ed, you, you talked about how it meant to you watching that clip, but knowing that all those people who've seen themselves on screen, that that's something that's going to be with them forever and it is a special moment in their lives uh, that will maintain the, the legacy of Bill and Ted as well for, for many, many more years to come. Oh, yeah, that's a sweet feeling, man. That really feels nice. Did Alex and Keanu ever comment on the sequence? Did they, did they like that the film ended that way? I think uh, everyone really loved it. Honestly. Um, yeah, Alex and Keanu were thrilled with it. I was too. I really liked that it ended that way. It was missing one thing, which is my kids submitted. They didn't make it. Oh, no. Really? You know, I, I would make an issue about this, but I, I think, I think we've, we've got over it now. That <laughs> might be because legally, probably, they weren't probably allowed to I don't be. think so. I don't think so. I'm guessing. I wish I could have had a say in, in what got in and didn't just because they were there were some that I was like, oh, I really want that to get in or like friends of mine that I would have loved to have been able to put in, but I couldn't. I wasn't allowed by law to participate in making sure something was in. They were so worried that someone would sue. I don't know why. I think the other thing we wanted to touch on, Ed, is because obviously you've had such a storied career over the years and we wanted just to talk about franchises, like a huge amount of what we do at Think Jam is kind of world building and we work on some of these really big global franchises but you've got this really interesting string of having obviously Bill and Ted we've talked about Men in Black we've touched on uh, the X-Men movie which maybe not everybody knows that you were so involved in, in that first well, I took my movie. name off it because uh, like for really boneheaded reasons but, but yeah I, I did write the first four drafts of that and ultimately I was fired and one of the reasons I was fired as I was told by the producer is that I wrote these comic book characters as serious people. Like I thought it was a really cool idea that their physical powers are outward manifestations of their own internal struggles, you know? And it was really painful to be removed from that. And then a series of writers came in. So when it came time for credit, I, got, I was given credit because me and Chris McQuarrie were originally the two people given credit. I guess I had had a lot of stuff in that movie. And we both felt that this other guy, David Hayter, should also have credit because he had done a fair amount of work on it too. But at the end of the day, I thought, I don't want the Super Mario Brothers thing to happen where I'm feeling like I'm taking credit, but it wasn't totally my work, which was an act of hubris and, and actually silliness on my part because uh, it was obviously a stupid move. Charlie's Angels came after that and I really had learned my lesson about taking my name off something. I was just like, dude, just don't worry about it anymore. So my name is still on Charlie's Angels, though. I don't feel I actually deserve credit on it. So what that means is there is me, and then there is the me that has a credit. And those are two separate me's. Like there's the, the, the me that seems to get either praised or criticized publicly or something in the middle. And I try to kind of not pay attention to that guy. And then there's the me that's doing the stuff I have control over, which is writing a script and doing the best job I can and turning it in and letting go of it. And that's the only way I can personally deal with uh, having a vaguely semi-public profile of my name versus a very private profile of my actual self and my actual job is to just pretend those are two different entities and let them live separately. And that's what I do. That wasn't probably your question, but I answered it that way anyway. 
to carry on from, from what you just said, how did that personal and feeling and the separation then manifest itself? Because it it's not long after Charlie's Angels, you did Levity, right? So Men in Black came out and I had always wanted to tell this story about this guy who had gotten out of prison. It's a story I've been thinking about for, for a long time. It was based on someone I had met when I used to work at a prison when I was in college. I was a tutor at a youth prison uh, as, as part of a, just a college program, really, that I was interested in doing a club or I don't, I don't remember what it was. It was a, a UCLA prison coalition is what it was called. And we used to tutor kids, math and English, that were in this maximum security youth penitentiary. And one of the kids I tutored used to care, literally carried a picture of the person he killed around, unfolded it, showed it to me talked about the kid the judge had made him carry the photo everywhere the judge made him go through the kid's personal effects um i remember the guy saying to me he he made me hold his football i had to throw his football like i didn't know he was a human being or something which i thought was really interesting i'd never heard of that before but this kid who was almost 18 and when he turned 18, he was gonna to go to a maximum security prison. He's had a life sentence. He was tried as an adult, even though the murder was I think late 16 or early 17 years old. This kid sort of grappling with the idea of what he did and he didn't know really why he had done it. And to me, it was like a deeply moving thing. And what a great place to start a story from is what I, what I had thought, because this kid had really affected me but I couldn't get the script right. I kept trying it and I couldn't, I wasn't a good enough writer to get it right. When Men in Black came out, I had two choices. Use whatever currency I had right now. I could do any job I wanted. I could make all the money I wanted as a screenwriter in that genre. Or finally I could use whatever clout I had from Men in Black to get this levity idea made. So I chose instead to write levity and try to get that made. And that was a real struggle and a big learning lesson. And truthfully, I thought the movie was going to end up doing what I had hoped it would do, but it didn't. It, it, when it, we, we did a couple of test screenings and we got such like recruited audience screenings. We got super positive feedback. And then we got told we were going to open Sundance. And I thought, oh my God, this is going to work. The risk I took is going to work. And then just a few key critics just freaking hated it. And it began to like snowball into this just negative experience where it was truly painful. Uh, put your kind of heart and soul into something and fight so hard to get something made and it just tanked. And well, I'm being a little unfair to it. It was about a 50-50 kind of thing. It polarized people. There were people that truly loved it, but the so-called important critics just came after it and came after me personally. In fact, the very first big review that was hung on every door at Sundance was a guy who came after it in particular, referred to it as from the guy who brought you Charlie's Angels. Now he's trying to do this, like how dare him broach our territory of, you know, the prize world of indie film, like fuck you, Charlie's Angels writer. And the irony given what you now know about Charlie's Angels, which is I had nothing to yeah. do with it the end but regardless yeah i try i mean it was an attempt to and i had a few of those attempt to really try to expand my 
my skill set. And it took me much longer to do that than I had expected. It took me like two decades of trying to finally get to a place where now most of the work I'm doing is not in the comedy or sci-fi. Most of it is actually um, not that just because honestly, I'm 60 years old. I think you lose your sense of humor, not on purpose. You just, you, you know, the world changes, you change. It's hard for me to be funny like I was. It's hard for me to get to those comedy places anymore. So I had to try to really work hard to broaden my abilities as a writer so that now in my life, I can write a wider range of stuff and still be hopefully a vital person so I can keep employed. And it's working for me now, finally. For me, Levity is, is a very moving, brilliantly acted film. I remember seeing it at the time. You saw it. I can't believe you yeah, saw, I saw it. Yeah, I saw it. Holy moly. Well, thank you. It's very rare that you can write a movie and put it out there and then actually keep track of every single individual who's seen it. So I'm just going to tick you off on the list. Look, if you like it or didn't like it, that one is my fault or my responsibility. I, I'm the sole person. Well, that's why I brought it up because I thought it was interesting where you're talking about Charlie's Angels where your name's on it, but it's not yours. And then, But after that success, having something you write and direct that's yours that you actually do put your whole self into in, in a different way, as in whether it's success or not, in your eyes or, or critics' eyes, is a big change in how your career was developing and i think i think does make a powerful film and then and you see the resonance of that even whether it's the metaphysical elements in uh, bogus journey or even if we probably don't have time to touch on mosaic and and, and the complexities there but you know you, you you see that through your work well i appreciate that very much really i mean i i, I really do I had hoped it would do more for me in a certain way, and it didn't because it wasn't well enough received, but I learned a ton. And Mosaic was a giant experiment because we had written it to be a branching narrative thing. I was proud of Mosaic. I, I thought, okay, now, now at least I'm finally in a spot where, hey, the story's working. The director, Steven Soderbergh, did an incredibly good job with it. Cast was great. Hey, I'm really proud of this. And now I have a new movie that starts shooting in a week that Soderbergh is directing as well, that is a uh, drama, takes place in the 50s in Detroit. It's about a lot of issues that are, by coincidence, have become very current again, which we didn't realize that would be the case. But, you know, so I feel like it took me a lot of failure and a lot of years <laughs> to get to where at least I could get myself set up to where some of this stuff is actually starting to work. I'm really appreciative. Thank you so much that you have seen all these things. I really can't believe it. Thank you. Can I ask Ed, is that how Steven Soderbergh is involved with Face to Music? Obviously I've seen he's a, listed as an executive producer. Is that kind of a, a relationship that you and him have together and you wanted to involve yeah, him? Yeah, in 2013, believe it or not, I got a phone call from Casey Silver. This is really actually kind of interesting. So I made a few attempts in my career to, to write what you would call more serious movies. The first was after Bill and Ted. I wrote a movie called Leaving Normal. The script I was very proud of, actually. I, I met with Casey Silver, who was president of production of Universal. And he said, I'd like to make this movie, but I don't believe that it's necessarily commercial. I'm not going to pay a lot of money for it. And if it gets made, you'll get a bonus. But I like the script and I believe in it. And I think we can make a good movie. And I was like, thank you so much, man. And for whatever reason, it didn't connect with people. It didn't, it, 
it was a bomb. But the fact that Casey took a risk on me for that really meant everything to me. That was about 1990. It was right after Bogus Journey was made and before Bogus Journey came out. And my hope was that that script was going to elevate me to another level of being able to work with better filmmakers and that kind of thing. But it bombed. Casey remained chairman of Universal for quite a long time. And it's very hard to be friends with people who are running studios because either you want something from them or they want something from you. And you can't really have an actual friendship, though I always appreciated him. When Casey left Universal, I reached out to him because now he's not in that job. And I said, hey, man, let's go have lunch. And we began a friendship, like in talking. We'd, we'd meet every few months, have lunch. And 2013, Casey calls me and he says, hey, are you a fan of Steven Soderbergh? And I was like, uh, yeah. And he said, Steven wants to do this little experiment, 10 minute he want, thing where he wants to experiment with trying to see if he can tell a little branching narrative story where you follow one character and it means this and you follow another character and it means that. And we're having trouble finding any, someone that actually believes in this, but would you have any interest? And I said, yeah, for sure. Flew to New York, met with Steven, and we worked on it for a bit together. And then Steven said, you know what? I want to do a full story like this. And because I had had that experience with Steven, and by the way, I was very conscious in my head saying, I'm going to definitely make this work. I'm going to do everything I can to make this work. Steven said, hey, would you be interested in doing the longer version? And I said, yeah, let me work out some story stuff. Pitched him some ideas and he, he said, all right, let's do it. And I committed to write it for him. We didn't know if it was going to get set up or not. During the course of my writing, it got set up at HBO. But I went and spent a year working on this 400-page script of a branching narrative. And I learned so much from that process. And that led to me saying to Stephen, while we're in the middle of Mosaic, which was a fantastic work experience, watching him work with this cast, me saying, he's like, what else are you working on? And I said, oh, we're trying to get this Bill and Ted movie made. And he's like, what? Why are you having trouble getting a Bill and Ted movie made? I said, I don't know. Maybe, maybe the script's no good. I don't know. People don't seem to want to do it. He said, can I read it? I said, yeah, sure. He read it. He's like, okay, people are idiots. This thing has to get made. So he, I said, would you want to help? You want to get involved? He said, absolutely. And so he came on as exec producer and uh, just to try to help get the momentum going to get it made. The Mosaic experience led to two more projects with Steven. And I have four things with him now. One was, let's do another branching narrative TV show, which I spent two years writing on spec, 550 pages, which he's shooting next year. And that was designed to be both branching narrative and linear. So I'm writing this 500 page script that's designed to be told in two entirely different forms. And then he said, I want to do this movie about this Detroit movie that, you know, this 50s noir film. Uh, he told me the idea he had. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, let me try that. So I wrote that on spec. And that's being shot in a week, theoretically, assuming COVID doesn't shut it down again. So the reason I bring all this up is my failure 
at maybe making leaving normal work led to a relationship with Casey that led to me doing that little experiment, which led to mosaic, which led to Steven being involved in Bill and Ted, which led to me doing kill switch, which is the Detroit movie and full circle, which is this other TV show, you know, in other words, setting up and taking these risks and failing, which felt devastating at the time, led to where I am now, which is in a place where weirdly, my career is the best it's ever been in a four decade long career. I'm in a better place than I've ever been. And the only thing I can really attribute to is actually not the successes, but the failures. I mean, the successes lead to me getting opportunity to work, but the failures are the things that led to me learning like, okay, what did I do wrong? How do I improve on that? Where is it my fault? Where is it not my fault? Well, here's where you messed it up, Ed. Well, here's where it's not your fault. So you got to like, look at, well, then why did that happen? You know, it's a fascinating process. And to me, I think, I don't think people give credit to enough credit to failure in this business. But it's not just failure, it's failure with resilience. Because failure with sort of indulgence, like, oh God, I failed, I can't do this anymore. Well, that, that's a career stopper, obviously. I have one last question off the back of that, if you don't mind, Ed, I know we're keeping you. Um, I, would love, I would love to know how you deal with control. Obviously, as, as a filmmaker, as a writer, as a creative, you touched on it there, that there are, there are things that are within your power. There are things on the page that you can help sculpt. And then there are things like critics and reviews and, and the world that we inhabit in marketing and how a film is presented to people and trailers. We work with most, if not all, of sort of studios around the world. And there's lots of conversations around filmmakers' opinions and how do we honor the original vision? And how do you balance that with maybe a, a commercial or a marketing objective? So I guess I'm just keen to understand how from purely from the filmmaker's lens, purely from the, you've created something on the page, when do you choose to sort of engage and, and roll up your sleeves and say, no, I, I, I want my opinion to be heard here and I want you guys to understand this. And when do you choose to put the other channel on and <laughs> make a piece of toast and try and ignore how someone else is perceiving a film? That's a great question, and uh, I appreciate your asking that. You keyed on it correctly when you said the things that are in your control and the things that are out of your control. I'll work really hard on the things that are in my control until they're no longer in my control, and then there's nothing I can do about it. I want the things to be successful because I want to be able to keep working. Most of my career, I've been a writer. I've directed some things, and I've produced things. But as a writer, there's often a feeling like, oh my God, they're ruining my words or whatever, you know. I don't subscribe to that. You do the best job you can. You have a tangential effect on, on the quality of films in that obviously if it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage, they say. If you can get your script to really, really work, the key I now realize is you want to write something that attracts certain level of talent and on balance i think to the extent that a lot of the movies that i have my name on that didn't work sometimes they're not my fault and sometimes they are my fault but even when they're not my fault in a way they're my fault because if what i wrote didn't attract someone 
at a talent level high enough to actually elevate the script, that is my fault in a certain way. If what I wrote attracts a director who then rewrites and bastardizes something, which has happened to me quite a few times, that's also my fault. I just didn't get, I wasn't good enough yet to get high quality person involved who can then elevate rather than you know diminish. I have a lot of neurotic tendencies and qualities, but one that I don't have is I actually don't worry about the stuff that's not in my control. I actually don't. I don't, you know, if someone asks my opinion about marketing, I will give it. But, and if something isn't being mar marketed well, and I can reach out to someone and say, hey, what about this instead of that? I, I will offer it because again, I want stuff to be successful. But I mean, I noticed this yesterday. I got a text that, you know, I'm on this group text with all the producers of Bill and Ted. Okay, we got the numbers from the weekend in. Let's have a call. You guys want to hear the numbers? And I literally didn't care. It's like the numbers are the numbers. I don't care to hear them. If they're good, that's great. If they're not good, that's a bummer. There's no effect I'm going to have on them. The numbers are just numbers and I'll find them out at some point. I don't have the desire to rush on a phone call. I don't even watch movies often when they're done. I, and I'm sometimes surprised, like, why not? There are many things, including things that I really think the director get a great job on that I haven't seen com to completion. Just because I don't know why it's done. Certainly the movies that I don't feel like I really had a final you know, say on, I don't watch. Because it's like, why? It's not my thing anymore. Leaving Normal, the, the script I told you about where I met Casey, is the 1990, the last time I read a review of a movie of mine, good or bad. I don't read interviews. Like, I won't listen to this podcast. I'm not going to pay any attention to press that comes out positive or negative. Sometimes people send stuff to me and I'm on Twitter. So, you know, I'll see stuff. People will obviously tag me on stuff or, Hey, you should read this. And sometimes I'll like skim through, you know, but, but I don't really read very closely. I don't try to bother myself with the stuff that I can't control. What I can control is how good a script is or at least I can take it as far as I can possibly take it and do the best possible work that I can do on it and then let it go. If I were to start all over again and I wanted to work in more with more control, I wouldn't go into screenwriting. I would write theater, I would write books and maybe television. Because once you make the choice to be a screenwriter, you're making the choice to not have control over the, the words you write. I do the best I can. I turn it over to somebody and I hope it's going to be good because that affects me. But at the end of the day, I can't invest in it because it'll drive me crazy. So that's what I meant by saying there's these two me's. There's that public me that's done some good movies and some bad movies. And then there's the private me that's just trying to do the best job he can on a script. And it's a weird life because you're ultimately writing something that a handful of people read. And that's it. I'm writing a play right now. I do have a novel I'm working on. I am working on TV. So I am doing that. Um, but I wouldn't go into as a pure screenwriter. 
Well, thank you for the scripts you have written. <laughs> I appreciate it. Obviously, the the world is embracing face to music, and it's doing well in a in a time where not not many films are even making it out the gate. Is there room in the world for Bill and Ted Four? Is that a thing that will ever see the light of day? I figured pretty much that we were done, and I think Chris and I both felt like yeah, I think I think we've told the Bill and Ted story to its completion. I mean, how we visit them on their deathbeds now, but. Maybe a Billy and Thea story, if there's a great movie in there, uh, could be really worth doing. Again, assuming we can come up with something that's really great and worth telling. And Chris and I were pretty sure that we were done. And I still think we're, we are done. But we also, Chris actually mentioned, you know, maybe one day, like when we're in our 70s or 80s <laughs> doing Bill and Ted could be interesting if Alex and Keanu as 80 year olds were interested, but I don't think short of that, it would be something that we would re revisit at this point. I think we've told that story now. Thank you for your time. Thank you for making our, uh, well, mine and, and my colleagues lockdown more interesting. I think it made for a great 2020. So appreciate all the work and we should definitely, um, Big, big shout out from all of us at Think Jam here to Alex and Scott as well, who both did, produced the movie and also brought us in and introduced us to Ed, um, without whom we wouldn't be able to have this wonderful conversation and have been involved in uh, uh, such a special film. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And I will say, Daniel, thank you for having viewed those pieces and thanks for talking about them. And I really appreciate not just the work you guys did on Face the Music, which was remarkable, but the fact that you had me on here and that you, uh, you know, really cared about all this stuff. So thank you so much. A big thanks to Ed for his time, his insight and for sharing his story. Bill and Ted Face the Music is out in cinemas now and it's available on demand around the world. You can also follow Ed on Twitter, which I highly recommend at Ed underscore Solomon. So from both Erin and myself, thanks for listening. Be excellent to each other and party on dudes. This has been Jam Sessions.